let's refresh our memories of where we are in Mark's narrative of the story of Jesus. He has come to Jerusalem, which he entered on a colt to shouts of Hosanna. In the temple, he drove out the money changers and those who were buying from them, and he gave authoritative teaching. And the basis of his authority was then challenged in a series of confrontations with Jewish religious leaders, each of whom sought to trap Jesus in his own words, save for the final scribe. They were successfully, successively unsuccessful. But last time we heard about that exceptional scribe, He was an exception because he was a religious authority who did not try to trap Jesus, but who respected his authority and asked his opinion about an important matter of biblical interpretation. This scribe not only approved of Jesus' answer, but also added to it in a way that earned the approval of Jesus. He told this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And once Jesus makes that statement, Mark adds, But after that, no one dared question him. That sequence of events sets the stage for the episode before us today. If that scribe was not far from the kingdom, what did he yet lack that was needed to enter the kingdom? He demonstrated knowledge of the scripture and accurate interpretation in matters of the law. Jesus is now going to take him and all in the crowd to the scriptures to focus the discussion on his own identity. Entrance into the kingdom of God only comes through a right relationship with Jesus. And so it was important to know who Jesus was in light of scriptural revelation. This is a matter of concern to more than that exceptional scribe who encountered Jesus in the temple. The most important question to be answered by every human being remains this. Who is Jesus, and how will I respond to him? Most important question for anyone. Who is Jesus, and how will I respond to him? Well, the passage before us today does not answer that question in an exhaustive fashion, but it does begin to point us in the right direction. In challenging the scribes of his day, Jesus also challenges us to determine what we believe about him and how we will respond to him. So let us keep that in mind as we work our way through this brief passage. And as we'll see, there's a lot that's packed into these few verses. Listen to it again. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Well, let's establish in our minds the setting of this incident. Where is Jesus? Well, he's still in the temple, we're told in verse 35. That's where all these recent encounters have taken place. What is he teaching? Well, what is he doing? He's teaching, and this is a significant exercise of the authority of his that has been challenged. And whom is he teaching? Verse 37 tells us it is the common people. Literally, it is the great crowd. And it is likely that many of these people have been there listening to Jesus' previous encounters with the religious leaders. 
just as we saw the exceptional scribe had done. But now Jesus is taking the initiative in teaching the crowd in the temple. And his teaching takes an interesting form. First of all, there's an opening question about scribal interpretation in verse 35. Then in verse 36, there's a quotation from the Old Testament that relates to the question. And then in verse 37, a closing question that redirects the original question to the crowd. Sorry, that's not alliterative or brief, but it gives you a sense of, of where we're going. So we want to look at this more closely. First of all, there's that opening question about scribal interpretation. Jesus asks, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now remember the word Christ is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word for Messiah. How is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? That's the question he lays out there. That's what's in their mind as he continues, how is it that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, then he moves to a quotation from the Old Testament that relates to this. For David himself said to the, by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 110. It's the first verse of Psalm 110. And as an aside... Notice how Jesus introduces this quotation of Scripture. He says, For David himself said, that is, he identifies David as the author of this psalm. And if you were to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110, you would see the heading that goes back to the Hebrew text, a psalm of David. And this simply shows us that Jesus takes seriously the claims found in the Bible. If it says that David wrote it, then David wrote it. One of the sad things about much academic scholarship of the Bible in our day is that it constantly questions such claims. We need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus by trusting the accuracy of God's revelation in the Bible, even about such little things as authorship. But Jesus says more than that. He says, David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. Well, how is it that we can trust the human authors of Scripture? After all, this book didn't drop down from heaven. It was written by a number of different human beings. How can we trust it? Well, it's because they wrote under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter expressed it this way in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the image at, that end, at the end of that verse is of men being carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the, the image of a boat or a ship being carried along by the wind that fills its sails. And the end result of the Holy Spirit filling those authors who wrote the word were that the Bible is both fully human but also fully divine. And for this reason, it is totally trustworthy. That was Jesus' view of Scripture. And as Christians, it needs to be ours as well. And again, this is roundly questioned even by many in the church in our day. 
Well, that was an important aside, but let's get back to the text. Jesus here quotes the first verse of Psalm 110. Now, interestingly, Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted or alluded to verse from the Old Testament in the New. There are 33 times when Psalm 110 is either directly quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. And there's good reason for this. Jesus and the subsequent authors of the New Testament found in Psalm 110 a very clear prophecy of the Messiah with a special focus upon his ascension to the right hand of God and his victory over his enemies. Listen to a few other passages from the New Testament that draw on the imagery found in this first verse of Psalm 110. We have Ephesians 1.20. According to the working of God's mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. But this man, that is Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Hebrews 8, 1. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Or Colossians 3, 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. The first followers of Jesus rightly understood the tremendous significance of the fulfillment of messianic prophecy in Psalm 110. In his ascension, that is his return physically to heaven, and then his session, that is his seating on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. And this truth filled with them, them with hope, gave them confidence in prayer, and informed their everyday priorities and decisions. Today is Ascension Sunday. And as I mentioned, I've kept this as our text because it does point to this vital event in the life of Jesus. Jesus himself prepared the way for all this reflection on Psalm 110 by his use of it in the text we're considering. So let's look at it a bit more closely. Jesus has asked how the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David, when David said in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Or scroll there if you must. Psalm 110. To understand this passage, we need to discern the two uses of the word Lord. Now, in Greek, the same word is used twice, but it translates two different words in the Hebrew original. So look closely at the first verse, and you'll most likely find that your Bible prints the word Lord in slightly different ways in that verse. The first use of it has Lord in all capital letters. Do you see that in your Bibles? Okay, Lord in all capital letters. Now, whenever you see that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you know that the original word was not the title Lord, but the divine name that we translate Yahweh, or in the past has been translated as Jehovah. It's the name. The capital letters indicate that's the name. You see, the Jews developed a superstitious view that they were not to say or write the divine name. And most modern translators have followed their predilection 
in this regard. Frankly, I wish they hadn't done so. I wish they translated the divine name consistently as Yahweh because it would make passage like this one much clearer. Now, the second use of Lord in Psalm 110 has the first letter capitalized, but the rest are small letters. You see that. And that accurately translates the Hebrew word for Lord or Master, and that is the word Adonai. It's a title. Someone's Lord, someone's Master. It's not a personal name. So what the verse actually says is, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Yahweh said to my Lord. Now remember who wrote this psalm. It's a psalm of David, right? Even Jesus brings that out. So David is saying... Yahweh said to my Lord, that is to David's Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, by the time of Jesus, this was already understood as a messianic prophecy. It was the Messiah, the Christ, whom God would bid to sit at his right hand until he made his enemies his footstool. The key point in Jesus' use of this verse is that it identifies the Messiah as David's Lord. And so we get to the third step, and that's the closing question that redirects back to the crowd. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, do you see Jesus' logic? The scribes say that the Christ is David's son. But David says that the Christ is his Lord. How can both be the case? Do you call your son Lord? I don't. I don't recommend it. I kind of go to their head a little bit. That's not what we do in our home. Now, on the surface, it might seem like Jesus is denying that the Messiah is the son of David, that the scribes are wrong in their interpretation, but that's clearly not the case. We can note that for three reasons. First of all, there's Old Testament prophecy. Listen to the word of the Lord as it was spoken through the prophet Nathan to King David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, speaking to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Yahweh promised that one of David's descendants would be king ruling over his kingdom forever. Now, this could not be said of any of the kings that followed in the line of David in Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. It was a prophecy of a greater king to come, a king who would be a son of David because he was in his humanity a descendant of David. But then we have New Testament testimony. Consider the very opening words of the New Testament. These are the very first words. You know, the Bible begins, in the beginning... God created. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Very first words in the New Testament. Now, those are the first words of a genealogy. And you remember that the Old Testament is filled with a number of genealogies. It's one of those places we can get a little bogged down in in, in Bible reading. But you see, those genealogies are very important. Because the Lord had made promises that were to be fulfilled through specific tribes and families. Every genealogy was a little statement of faith that God would fulfill those promises. 
And so the people thought it very important to keep track of their family lines. What are the last genealogies in the Bible? Well, they're the genealogies of Jesus that we find in Matthew and Luke. They are the last because Jesus is the long-anticipated one who has fulfilled the ancient prophecies. And one of those involved Jesus being the son of David, an important fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. And so the genealogy had to trace Jesus back to David to show that connection. But once Jesus has come, there's no longer a need to maintain tribal distinctions. Besides the fact of the Messiah being from the line of David, the the other most significant reason at that time to keep track of these lines was to follow the tribe of Levi because the priest who served in the temple had to be in that line. So you had to have the genealogical connection to know who could serve as priests. But Jesus' work is going to mean the end of the temple, as he has previously hinted at in Mark's gospel and as he will soon spell out in very crystal clear terms. So understand this. There are no more genealogies in the Bible after Jesus because God's people are no longer defined by ethnic and tribal identity but are a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles together following Jesus. We don't have to keep track of of physical genealogies any longer. That was all part of God's purposes to prepare the way for Jesus. And once he has come, those things disappear because Jesus is Lord over all, not just an ethnic nation of Israel. Well, the key point here is that the New Testament explicitly identifies Jesus as the son of David. And here in Mark, Jesus isn't denying that. But then thirdly, we have the testimony in Mark's gospel itself. In context, the greatest evidence that Jesus isn't denying that the Messiah is the son of David is prior testimony in Mark's gospel. The first mention of David in Mark is found in chapter 2. When the Pharisees question Jesus about his disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath, Jesus responds, Have you never read what David did? And as we saw when we looked at that passage, Jesus draws a line of identity between himself and David and between his disciples and David's men. Jesus is presenting himself as a new David with full kingly authority. Jumping ahead to chapter 10, we find blind Bartimaeus calling out repeatedly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus doesn't reject this address to him as son of David. He answers Bartimaeus' cry of faith by having mercy on him and healing his blindness. Then in chapter 11, we have the record of Jesus entering Jerusalem, that event we know as Palm Sunday. As he rides on a colt, the crowd spreads branches before him on the road and cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the kingdom of God of our father, David, that comes. The Jewish crowd recognized in Jesus' entry into the holy city the coming of the kingdom of David. That is the fulfillment of that prophecy from 2 Samuel 7. And again, Jesus receives this acclamation without objection. He doesn't say, oh no, don't call me that. So there's been ample testimony in Mark's gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. So what is the point of Jesus' question about the interpretation of the scribes and the views of the crowd? If he is not telling that the Christ is not the son of David, what is he teaching? 
Here's what it is. Jesus is challenging the scribes and the crowd to realize that the Messiah is more than just the son of David as they have conceived of the son of David. He is not only the son of David, a physical descendant in that family line, he is also David's Lord. He is greater than David. And these two scriptural affirmations must be made together. And it appears that that was news to those in the temple that day. Well, let's think back to Jesus' original question. How did the scribes understand the Christ to be the son of David? Well, it would appear that they adopted the common Jewish view of their time, that the son of David would come as a descendant of David, who would be a great military and political liberator, a great king like David. In their mind, he would come to free them from the shackles of Rome. Now, we get a taste of that viewpoint from a Jewish writing from the first century before Christ. It is titled The Psalms of Solomon. It's one of the documents known as pseudepigrapha. That big word means false writing. And it's false because its authorship was attributed to someone who didn't write it. These Psalms of Solomon were written long after the time of Solomon. They're not inspired scripture, but they do give us a window into Jewish thinking around the time of Jesus. Listen to a portion of this book that shows what many Jews were expecting the son of David to be and to do. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction in wisdom and in righteousness, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. You see, there was a popular expectation that the son of David would be a human king who would come to purge Jerusalem of Gentiles, to drive sinners out of the inheritance of Israel, to exalt Israel above all the other nations. In short, the son of David was going to come to smash some heads. Now, this expectation wasn't all wrong. Jesus did come to bring liberation to God's people. But it was not that political liberation that they expected. It was not liberation at the point of a sword. The scribes and other Jews were looking for a Messiah who would be the son of David, a human deliverer. Jesus is calling them to realize that their picture of the Messiah was too small. Yes, in his humanity, the Christ, the Messiah, was David's son, but he was also David's Lord. He was not simply another great king like David. He was above David. And as David's Lord, exalted by Yahweh to a heavenly throne at his right hand, the Christ was also the Son of God. Remember, that was simply returning to the place from whence he came at the incarnation. Son of David and Son of God. This was the proper way to view the Messiah. This was the right answer to Jesus' question about his own identity. And it was what that exceptional scribe needed to grasp if he was to move from one being not far from the kingdom to being one inside the kingdom. It was what all Jews needed to affirm in order to embrace Jesus as the fulfillment of their messianic expectations. If Jesus is the Davidic king, and if he is David's Lord, 
then he is also Lord over everyone in his kingdom. The Apostle Paul captures the balance of Jesus as both son of David and son of God in the opening words of his letter to the Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Yes, Jesus is the Son of David, but he is also David's Lord, the Son of God. Consider also Jesus' own testimony found in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, where Jesus says to John, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. As the offspring of David, Jesus is that son of David as regards his humanity. But as the root of David, The root comes before the plant. As the root of David, Jesus is the Son of God from whom David takes his very being. Any attempt to reduce Jesus to merely human categories goes against his own testimony and the pervasive testimony of inspired Scripture. So how about you? How do you answer and respond to the question about the identity of Jesus? Do you see him as the son of David in his humanity, fulfilling the ancient promise of a king to come in David's line who would reign forever? But do you also see him as David's Lord, as God the Son, who has ascended and even now is reigning from his heavenly throne at the Father's right hand while he subdues all the enemies of his kingdom? Yes, a son of David, but one greater than David. Yes, a descendant of David, but one who came before David. Has Jesus subdued your heart by granting you faith in him? If so, then rejoice in the wonder of his grace. And consider the practical implications of his heavenly lordship for your life. You have an advocate with the Father who is seated at his right hand. This should give you boldness and confidence in prayer. You have the privilege of being spiritually united with Christ in the heavenly places. And so you can and should set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is. And you can rest in the fact that you are a citizen in a kingdom whose kingdom, whose king will reign forever. It is a blessed thing to know that Jesus is your Lord and King. But if you have not responded to Jesus in faith, if you don't know him in this way, then I would call upon you to consider his claims and their import for your life. Don't be satisfied merely with not being far from the kingdom because you do things like come to this building on Sunday mornings. Entrance into the kingdom doesn't come from by, by being associated with the church. It doesn't come by being baptized or by giving tithes. Entrance into the kingdom only comes through faith in Jesus. 
It comes by giving up on yourself, acknowledging your own unrighteousness, and believing that Jesus took the wrath to your sins on the cross so that you could be clothed in his righteousness. Such entrance into the kingdom will mean the forgiveness of all your sins, reconciliation with a God from whom you are estranged, and the prospect of eternal joy in the presence of King Jesus. If you struggle to believe these things, pray and ask God to grant you faith. He can do that by his powerful Holy Spirit. Ask him to reveal Jesus to your mind and heart in such a way that you know his love for you and experience his grace for you. You will never know true and lasting joy until you know Jesus as your King and your Lord.